everyone, and welcome back to the 10th episode of What the Family Studies. Today, we would like to welcome Amanda Freeman to the podcast to discuss technology and research. Amanda joined the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board in September of 2022 as the manager of the System Learning Commons. Prior to joining the board, she spent many years working in public libraries, including managing a joint public and school library, where she was inspired daily by the dedication, passion, and enthusiasm of the school library staff. Amanda's goal in this role is to continue to nurture her love of reading into our community and to spark joy in our library spaces. Our learning goals to keep in mind for this episode are get to know Amanda and more about what she does in her role of managing system learning commons, gain insight into how we can help students develop their research and inquiry skills in the area of family studies, learn about what effective integration of technology in the classroom looks like, and discuss suggestions for addressing issues of digital citizenship in the classroom. All right, so Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into this role of the manager of the system learning commons and kind of what you do in this role? Yeah. If we're going right back to the beginning, I guess I'd have to say that my background really starts with the love of reading because as a kid, I was a very active reader and visits to the public library were just part of our family life. It inevitably ended up in my first job being a student page at my local library branch where I probably read more Archie comics than I actually shelved. I kept that job all through university. And then when I was on the verge of graduating from university with really no plan of what to do next. A longtime friend said to me, you know, have you ever considered this career, meaning the library? So off I went to Alberta and I did a a two-year master's of library and information science. Yes, yes. To call yourself a true librarian actually need a degree. And from there, I, I was really fortunate to earn an internship with Edmonton Public Library where I spent a year focused on services for inner city and at-risk youth. But, you know, life moves you in different ways. I got pulled back to Ontario. And as you sort of said in my intro, that's where I I landed a, a position eventually as a branch manager. And one of those locations was that joint public high school library. And I mean, that space really, it just, it continues to be a really dynamic, welcoming, inclusive space. Just a shout out to the Dr. Frank J. Hayden crew in Burlington. And it was there, I really saw firsthand what an effective school library could be. So when this role came up, it was the time I took the leap and I I couldn't be happier that I have because I'm I'm back where I was when I started out working with kids, which is where my, my passion lies for sure. And I guess the second part of your question, that's a really good one. So what do I do? I oversee 93 school libraries. It's a bit, I have a bit of sticker shock when I say that sometimes that I'm responsible for 93 school libraries in a way, partially with a small but mighty team of library technicians. As a department in general, we support the information literacy and the recreational reading interests of students. As a manager though, like taking that the next step, I would say that I'm also responsible for envisioning what the future of libraries and learning commons look like for the school board and advocating for the future of the learning commons. For me, that's a network really of people and information programs for learning both within the school and in the community. Those are spaces that are going to prioritize universal access to information and promoting the joy of reading and making sure that it's within reach for each and every student. 
Literacy is so important and it's something that I didn't necessarily have growing up. I hate to blame my mother, but she was working as a nurse overnight. And so she didn't have time to read with us as much as other families had time to read together. And so I grew up hating reading, which put me really behind, but I caught up and I'm fine now. But I'm noticing in my classes too, a lot of students are so behind with literacy and it's really sad and they just don't have an interest in reading at all either. So I'm really lucky that eventually I kind of got back into reading and I didn't fall too far behind. But yeah, that for sure, it's so important. And our libraries offer so much. And I only recently realized how much stuff the library has, not just for literacy, but I signed up for a free thread the bobbin kind of sewing 101 course like a few weeks ago. And I'm like, wow, this is here. And there's also like kind of like a memory lab where you can take like your old VHS home videos and put them onto a memory stick, which is so cool. And so I've been utilizing all that free stuff. So it's, it's amazing to see what libraries have to offer, but it would be a lot to do your role in collecting like all those books and having to keep track of them. Books are a small part of what we do. It's a big part and an important part of what we do. The true learning Commons goes beyond that as well. Can you explain a little bit about that? Like what, how is the learning commons different from like a traditional library of the past? And how does your work affect a classroom teacher? I really love this question because I think there's a lot of misconception about what a learning commons is. I think libraries of all kinds struggle with marketing themselves and awareness. I will say there's maybe a perception, I'm going to name it, of a a dowdy woman behind a desk asking you to keep it down. (laughs) Fear sometimes is what's associated with libraries for overdues or lost material or, or whatnot. But maybe I'm stereotyping here, but maybe that's a misconception that those in the family studies business might grapple with as well. But I think a true learning commons is a flexible and responsive space and approach to helping schools focus on learning collaboratively. One piece of this for sure is the school library. Collections of books that are engaging and inspiring young readers They're the best of the best books. We want items on that shelf that engage readers, that spark that joy of reading that's going to grab your attention. Beyond that, though, a true learning commons is really a vibrant whole school approach where we're creating a landing place for information, for people, for programs that are within the school and bringing in the community. A really successful learning commons is going to incorporate safe, inclusive, welcoming spaces, both physical and virtual, that students can see themselves in. They're going to provide universal, equitable access to information and make that a priority. It will incorporate partnerships where everyone is learning together, that's students and teachers. Uh, Learning Commons is also, you said in your intro there, really supporting students to develop those necessary digital literacy and research skills. So those are all features of the Learning Commons and the staff who work inside of them, teacher librarians and library technicians, for sure. So there's a lot there. Can you maybe explain how this relates back to family studies teachers. And so our curriculum, it addresses a lot of kind of controversial issues. So families and communities and society, we go through these things and they can be controversial when we talk about in class. So do you have any advice for where family studies teachers can select resources or find appropriate resources for their classrooms? I'm new to schools and I understand that these questions come from a place of wanting to do the right thing but I'm often asked for a list of approved or appropriate resources and my answer is probably unpopular and it might be unpopular here and 
and the short and sweet of it is no, I can't provide you with a list of appropriate resources because what's appropriate for your classroom is going to be very different from the classroom next to yours and the classroom next to that. And it's because appropriate resources starts with knowing who the students are in front of you, who they are as individuals, their intersectional identity. And so it requires you to sort of lean into a little bit of the uncomfortable there. And it requires you to change up what you're doing so that your resources reflect those students. That's not to say that people aren't doing that, but I think it has to start with reflecting on the interests of your students, who they are, and what they're bringing into the classroom. If your school board has a toolkit for selecting culturally relevant responsive resources, I would encourage you to look for that, to ask for that if you don't have it, to advocate for that, because that is also something that teacher librarians can help with. I think the other piece of that is when you know your students, you know that you might have a better sense of who within that community that you can pull from. So I'm thinking about your family studies, we're thinking about food and nutrition, we're thinking about food and culture. My thought would be that that conversation should start with consulting community, finding out from the students, other parents or community resources or cultural groups within the community that you could pull on to advise or to come into the classroom or zoom into the classroom to be able to share their resources. The Learning Commons is a place to start. When we're cultivating collections within the Learning Commons, we're consistently thinking of, does this reflect the student body and does it reflect student interests? So we don't necessarily cultivate curriculum materials. The teacher librarians and the staff within your library can definitely help connect you or guide you towards resources within your community and within the publishing industry to advise on where to look for those resources. Yeah, it's very true. I feel like oftentimes, especially new teachers, we often just want something simple. You know, mm-hmm. can you give us this? Can you find this? But it isn't that simple. And you're you're totally right. You have to think about how different your students are. And there is no one size fits all approach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not just new teachers either, though. I'm not an educator. So I, I in the traditional sense, and I'm not in a classroom. Right? But, you know, even I think it requires us to think what might have worked last year is not going to work this year because I have a different set of people in front of me who have different needs and interests and backgrounds. For sure. I think it's interesting that you say this too, just as, as we're recording this, we're just starting second semester of this school year. And so, you know, we were mentioning earlier when we were talking before we started the interview about how we're just sort of in the phase now of getting to know some of our students. And I think you're, you know, you're right. We need to go through that phase where we get to know them a little bit better, just so that we can kind of have a base from where we start. I think our knowledge of our students can help someone in your role when we are looking for resources. Research and inquiry, we do a lot of that in our family studies courses, but a lot of our students struggle with it. A lot of our students just like to go to the first source that they see. They don't want to dig too deep. What suggestions would you give to teachers to help them teach students the research and inquiry skills that they need? This is where I'll put my advocacy hat on. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to say that this really is the skill set of teacher librarians. As a starting point, if you're fortunate to be in a school that supports teacher librarians or that has a teacher librarian program, I would encourage family studies educators to make that connection. And coming back to that first question, recognizing the, the potential for collaboration. There's so many opportunities for teacher librarians or library staff to be connected to the classroom and to help with this type of conversation. So that might be bringing your class to the library commons, asking the teacher librarian to do an orientation to collections and instruct students on effective research practice, on the evaluation of resources for currency, for authority, for accuracy, 
to explain what it means to have academic integrity and to be responsible digital citizens. It might be an assumption that that's for a history class or an English class or geography class. It's equally as important, especially, you know, in the modern learning commons often is associated with things like makerspaces, creative technology. We can help have those conversations about what is copyright, what is intellectual property, those sorts of things. I would say modeling the expectations for those students. So seeking and asking for a variety of sources. Again, that goes to knowing the students that are in front of you, changing what we do so that we don't get into the same habit of requiring a set number of specific resources. Get creative. This is a creative curriculum think outside the box, think about community members, think especially, you know, if you're talking about people or groups who represent the communities that are in front of you, you know, I have to think a little bit differently about how you can reference those people or cite those people and those conversations within research, because it's equally as important as the book that you might pull off a shelf, because as you move into post-secondary Having that ability to reference and cite properly is so important if you're moving into a post-secondary education. The teacher librarian at my school is one of my favorite people in our school. She's so incredibly helpful, I think. And I think you're right. I think when you're talking about citation and trying to you know, teach students to sort of dig a little bit deeper when they're looking for resources, I can say it as many times as, as I need to, but then hearing it from another person, another trusted source, like a teacher librarian, I think... Yeah really helps send that message home. So the other component I'll add to that is when we model that the library is a place that you can go or the learning commons is a place that you can go for answers. That's a transferable mm-hmm. skills that takes people not only into their community or their outside life at present, but also into the future because there's there's enough to struggle with as you're making an integration into college or university. There's enough change to be had. So knowing that that the library is there, the learning commons is there to be able to answer your questions or get you connected. And it's a place where questions are welcomed, that you're not expected to know the answer, that people are there to guide you and are often able to connect you with other resources, other programs, other people to answer those questions. That's that's also a life skill. It absolutely is, isn't it? At the beginning, you were talking about, you know, your childhood when you were a kid and you loved to read and, and going to the library was a part of growing up. And what we're seeing today you know, I, I notice when I do take my kids into our library learning commons in, in my board, in my school, the students aren't heading to the bookshelf. They're heading to the internet. So we do need to integrate technology into our classrooms. And we've been doing it for a while, but how can we do it in a way that's engaging and effective and, and maybe more so than traditional methods? So what do you believe effective integration looks like? Again, coming back to this concept that learning commons are all about learning together that it has to start with us as the educators learning the tech tools that you want to integrate. So whether or not you're using Pear Deck, Screen, Castify, Brightspace, whatever you're using, you want to make sure that you understand those tools so that you can answer those questions or so that you can model that expectation. I think also it's also about explaining what responsible use of that technology is. So if we're talking about especially in creative courses, right, where you're creating, talking about copyright, the concept of intellectual property. It's important that that when you're integrating that tech or you're integrating the internet, that you're setting those students up for success so that they have the skills to be able to evaluate the sources, evaluate the tools that they're making use of. 
It actually leads me into the next question, which is about digital citizenship. And I think digital citizenship has so many components to it. And I think you, you've talked about some of the components. So a definition that we sort of like to use is the ability to engage with the internet and technology in a safe and meaningful way. So we need our students to know this and understand this, that they have rights, they have responsibilities. Like you said, when it comes to creating and consuming what's on the internet and of course, how they conduct themselves socially online. A lot of challenges with these issues. They're, they're fairly new to some of us, right? And they require us to take time to consider how we can best support these students as we move forward. What suggestions do you have for teachers to address issues of digital citizenship in the classroom? Yeah, I think it starts with modeling that expectation. So, I mean, digital citizenship really starts with protecting your, yourself from harm and protecting others from harm to being a responsible digital citizen and encouraging others to be responsible as well. So part of that is, is modeling that expectation. It's about evaluating the sources and encouraging students to be mindful of things like fake news. How do you guide students to be able to evaluate the websites that they're looking for. And the anachronism for that is, is called CRAP, the CRAP test. And that's currency, relevance, accuracy, authorship, and purpose. purpose. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Again, thinking about the role of the teacher librarian, this is exactly what we can help with. Coming back to copyright, coming back to the idea of intellectual property. What is that? What does it look like if you're taking something off the internet, if you're taking an image off the internet and you're putting it in a blog, you're creating something on a 3D printer, what is your responsibility as an individual to cite or reference? As a teacher, what is your responsibility? If you're pulling something down off the internet, if you're showing a, a video, if you're showing a movie, do you have the license and the right to do it? Modeling that and explaining why you're doing it. And I think bringing this back down to this concept of inclusion and accessibility is also recognizing like the idea of a digital divide that we make assumptions a lot that students, teens know what they're doing with technology. That's not to say that they all don't. I think we use technology and we use we have the assumption that there's confidence or understanding. I think that might be true as it comes to communication with technology, but I think it's important to also not make assumption that everyone has access at home, especially. I'm fortunate to be in a board where at the secondary level, students are provided with devices, but I also wouldn't want us to assume that when students go home, that there aren't other people in the home who might need that device. So I, I think that comes back again to personalizing the approach and knowing the students in front of you. And if we're, if we're thinking about the assignments or what we're, we're, we're asking of our, of our students, that we're also considering is the work that I'm asking them to do accessible? Have I considered technology access, technology access to Wi-Fi, all of these bits and pieces when when I'm assigning work and asking students to complete assignments. I think that digital divide is an important concept to, to learn about and know about. And it's something that we teach in our social science and humanities classes as well, too, very closely related. It, it's interesting coming out of COVID, coming out of online teaching in yeah. my board, all students, I think it's grade seven and up, are given Chromebooks. So we think we've done a great job, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean they all have access to the internet when they go home. So very good point for sure. And in my board, we do not have devices for everyone. So that's an issue in my board as well. But also just, we always assume that students know how to use Google Classroom. And I find that a lot of students maybe don't know how to use Google Classroom. And so a lot of teachers forget to do like a basic tour at the beginning of the year because they just come with this assumption that 
all students have used it before or Brightspace, which is not necessarily true. So I think also explicitly showing and teaching how to use our online platforms is important too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and, you know, discussing about the learning commons today. It's definitely something I was not familiar with before, and I still have a lot to learn. So thank you so much. We're going to go into our rapid fire questions now. So I'm just going to ask about five questions. Super random. You can answer them quickly. Are you ready? As I can be. Yeah. Right. Don't you don't have to stress. Okay. so do you prefer texting or talking? I think it depends on the time of day. (laughs) At work, talking. At home, after my kids have gone to bed, texting. Don't call me. Don't call me. I don't want to talk to you. I want to read my book. (laughs) See, I hate phone calls, but I love voice messages. I always send like voice recordings and all my friends hate it. They're like, I do not have time to listen to your five hours of voice recordings, but I I find it so much easier to communicate that way. Okay. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. There are so many... That's one of the greatest things about working in a library. There are so many conversations that I'd love to listen to or be part of or see, oh, I wonder how that's going to play out. And I, yeah, I'd love to. I'm a bit of a lurker. I, come, I have an anthropology background. So people and their stories are fascinating to me. Okay. What was your favorite childhood book? Oh, I love this. I used to ask my dad to read me Bread and Jam for Francis by Russell Hoban. It's a picture book about a badger. I think she's a badger. I'm not sure. I used to ask him to read that to me every night. I actually have it, my original copy that cost me 50 cents, a framed in my office at work because uh-huh. Francis ate the same thing every day, bread and jam. And so eventually her family just stopped offering her other things and she got really sick of bread and jam. And that encouraged her to branch out. And that's kind of like how I live my life is this concept of if you don't like what you're eating, you got to change it up. If you don't like where you're sitting, you got to move. And uh, I mean, that's how I got into this job. I, I loved where I was, but it was time for a change. So I moved. So bread and jam for Francis, Russell Hoban. Love it. Okay. How many cups of coffee or tea do you drink per day? Too many. If, uh, yeah, too many. I would say three cups of coffee. If it's a weekend, I might have an afternoon nightcap. So yeah, let's go three to four. Oh my goodness. I See, I want to love coffee so bad, but I don't like it. I don't know. I'm like the only person that I know that doesn't like coffee. What is something that you never get tired of eating? Cheesies. Cheesies. Okay. Yep. Actually, fun fact, my engagement ring was at the bottom of a bag of cheesies. And often (laughs) people will ask me, how did he know you'd get to the bottom? And I will say, that is why we're married. That's hilarious. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Those are some great stories, Amanda. We really appreciate you sharing them with us. Thanks so much for coming in, talking with us today. And thank you everyone for tuning in again. Join us next time as we interview Natasha Gleason, who's an instructional leader of Indigenous education at the Urban Indigenous Education Centre with the Toronto District School Board. The episode with Natasha will be released in early March. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of What the Family Studies. All links, resources, and social media platforms mentioned can be found in the show notes. Remember to subscribe to be notified when we release new episodes. Thanks for listening. What the Family Studies is brought to you by the Ontario Family Studies Home Economics Educators Association. Special thanks to our producer, Michelin Gallant, tech support and podcast editor, Cassandra McEachern, and our co-hosts, Catherine Murphy and Laura Hattier.